Hello, and welcome back to The Snub Club, a podcast where we talk about the movie that got the most Oscar nominations in a year, but had no wins whatsoever. I am one of your three hosts, Danny Vincent. Who else is here with me? Uh, I'm Sarah Knopf, your second of three hosts. Two is a company, but three is The Crowd by King Vidor. I am <laughs> Caleb Bunn. <laughs> okay, this is a special week. So we went back to the first Academy Awards, thanks to the magic of Criterion Channel. Uh, because they put up a certain movie that Caleb has already told. But I have to do my countdown. <gasps> The most nominated film at the first Academy Awards was a film called Seventh Heaven, which was nominated for five Oscars and won four. It won Best Direction of a Drama, Best Actress, and... Oh, it only won three. Best Adapted for Screenplay. I just randomly have a uh, semicolon after direction. Uh, that's kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> it's like, okay, I didn't write that down right. Anyway, the other one was Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which had four nominations and three wins. It won Most Unique Picture... <laughs> Uh, Best Actress and Cinematography. And yes, Seventh Heaven and Sunrise both won Actress because they shared a lead actress. And at the time, you could win for uh, two performances. Actually, she won for three. Janet Gaynor won for three performances that year. I kind of like that idea because there are some years, like Florence Pugh had this a couple years back. um, I think of... um, Sorry. Well, just where, like, they have, like, a breakout year, and it's really cool to see them in a bunch of different kind of movies. Domino Gleeson, too. I feel like there was one a few years back where I thought Kate Blanchett should have got something like that. Um, I do remember ma- the year that Moneyball and Tree of Life came out, the Academy had to specifically say that it was only for Moneyball and absolutely not for Tree of Life for Brad Pitt. <laughs> uh just funny because i think his tree of life performance is better but we'll get to that maybe i don't know i don't i don't know what 2011 looks like uh <laughs> uh anyway and then wings there were four films that got nominated got two nominations one of them was wings which won best picture and best engineering effects uh, another one is the last command which won just best actor uh we have two films this year that qualify and neither of them have been easily accessible uh The other one we'll get to whenever we get to it, whenever it becomes available. Uh, But this week we watched King Vidor's The Crowd, which had two nominations and no wins. Sarah, what was it nominated for? Yeah, so it was nominated for, I don't know what this award is, Best Unique and Artistic Picture. Um, (laughs) But it it lost to Sunrise um, and Best Directing for King Vidor who lost to Frank Borzage for Seventh Heaven. Uh, Vidor would go on to be nominated for three other films and win one honorary award. I I will say about, um, it'll be interesting to see how we end this, because I don't know how we would pick, like, what can it win, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, so, uh, The Crowd. This is our first and presumably only until we watch the other film from this year, Silent Film. Because the artist won Best Picture. Uh, <laughs> uh, another 2011 film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. Where, where, where should we start on this? Well, you know what? I actually know where we should start on this. Um, I thought I hadn't seen this movie before. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, wait. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm forgetting both your guys' segments. You can cancel me. 
Oh, wait. I only forgot Caleb's segment. I, I was like, do I, do I have to have something prepared? What are you talking about? <laughs> All right. Caleb, just go. Um, this is embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hate I hate that we had such a buildup to it because historical context is kind of lean this week. But um, this is an MGM movie. Um, you see the little lion at the beginning, but it's a silent lion. It's a lion who's been silenced. Um maybe even canceled, but, uh, it was, am I just was... praying to silence? <laughs> <laughs> but it was, um, not all the MGM lions were silenced that year. Um, because the first MGM lion roared that year in a movie called white shadows in the South sea, which came out in November of that year. Which I believe is after this. That's, I don't that know if that sound means... like a movie I'll ever want to watch. Just off the title, I, I am very uh, side eyeing that title. <laughs> I don't know if that means that it was MGM's first uh, talkie, but it was certainly their first Rory. Uh, okay. Before we move on, I do want to mention, I just realized another... Sorry, we will move on from this side topic, but Andrew Garfield in 2017 should have got a double actor nomination <laughs> for Hacksaw Ridge and Silence. Anyways, I have one other bit of... Unless, Caleb, Caleb are you done with historical context? Yes, I am. Okay. I have one other one, which how it's phrased on IMDb is hilarious, and I want to read it because it's so funny. Um... But it has to do with a certain taboo that was in the movie at the time, um, which had possibly never been seen before. I just need to navigate to the IMDb trivia. According to IMDb trivia, this film has been hailed by many to be the first film to show toilets. With so many silent films lost, that can only be an assumption, (laughs) not a fact. (laughs) (laughs) You know, That's this pretty is, good. That actually uh, is a good lead into what I wanted to mention about the movie before we got into it, which is I thought I had never watched this movie, and I haven't, mm-hmm. but Sarah will remember. I don't know if I, – I always forget Caleb if you ever took a class of him, and I won't say his name, but we had a professor in film school who was always saying the best way to watch movies was just to watch the beginning and the ending of the movie – and I have definitely seen the beginning and the ending of this movie. And I realized he showed it to me. And the reason I brought up this up as a lead is because this professor was also obsessed with the idea of toilets being in, like, movies. Just saying. Wait, I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking about, but I do not remember him talking about anything that you just said. <laughs> well, I, I took a few more classes of his, I think, than you, if I remember right. So it might not yeah. have been the first. I, I just remember I definitely saw the very beginning of this movie and the very ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, this is that movie I watched. And then, you know, surprise, it works better when I see the actual full movie <laughs> than when I just see the beginning and the ending. That's film school for you. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, the crowd. Yeah. Did, did, would would you say it? I don't know. I don't know. Kale already got the best joke about the crowd in there. <laughs> I was gonna say, did it draw? Would it draw crowds? But it doesn't really matter if it would draw crowds or not. We're not judging the finances of this film. What'd you guys think of it? I mean, 
the thing about the crowd is how are we, how, how are we gonna say this men are <laughs> the worst <laughs> they suck men are terrible I mean yeah <laughs> this is this is a movie that's very much like I think it's trying to paint this person's life as like a sign of how unfair life is when in reality it's kind of all his fault yes I thought the movie was great uh, outside of the racism uh, obviously I feel like that's always the little caveat I gotta put in these movies which is like thought like besides the racism uh, I think the fact that it was made in 1928 is astounding especially when we compare the other movies from the 20s and early 30s we've seen this is so much more sophisticated in the story it's telling and in the message it's trying to give and yes, the man in it is terrible, but I think the whole point of the film is to indict the system that created that side of entitlement. So to me, I'm just kind of like, yeah, he's terrible, but like that's kind of the point too, <laughs> to me at least. I thought it was great. I thought it was a great movie. <laughs> so I'm really glad that we didn't start with this for the podcast. Because I would have been like, mm, maybe, maybe I'm gonna sit out for the next. Oh, an alibi is so much No, alibi. Here, here's the thing. I would say yes. This is a better movie than Alibi. However, Alibi constantly had stuff for me to talk about, mainly kick lines. But kick lines. Like, <laughs> I think Alibi is a much more interesting film than this for all the wrong reasons. There's some definitely some impressive stuff here, but I do think it gets bogged down by how boring this main character is. I I guess, but I also again I like it's kind of the point to me that well, he is boring. Like <laughs> I think it's interesting too because it's kind of like I don't know. This is a problem. Not really. A, it's not really a problem, but something that I encounter when watching old films, um, and I think we actually talked about this with Alibi as well. Is like you know all these tropes and you presumably have an idea of like something that sticks in your mind like where this trope you know where you first saw this trope and like this is a movie that kind of built all these tropes and built this kind of like you know boy meets girl and etc etc story um so like it is boring to watch but like maybe for audiences back then it was like such a novel thing yeah, yeah, I, I felt like, to me, the ending in, okay, it, well, I don't want to jump to the ending immediately, but, like, the fact that, to me, it still ended really depressing was, like, wow, this is in 1928. Well, we'll talk about the ending, because I'm, I'm not sure if it ended depressing. I don't know. Okay, well, let's, let's start at the beginning, which, for you guys, it was the beginning today. For me, I saw it five years ago. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I want to clarify. I didn't remember. I not only saw the beginning and the end, I did see the scene in the middle where his kid gets ran over. Spoiler alert! Oh, that scene! <laughs> but we will get to that scene. <laughs> we will. The film begins with, uh, as as Kayla pointed out, the uh, silenced lion. <laughs> uh, and... Then we get a nice little title. I, I I think we begin with the title. After the credits, of course. Um, where it's like, it is July 4th, 1900, by the way. Any narration I'm going to read with that obnoxious newsreel voice. Sorry, guys. It is July 4th, 1900. 
And although America is celebrating its 124th birthday, but more importantly in this house, something more exciting is happening. And it's the birth of our boy, Johnny Sims. Um, not to be confused with John Sims, the actor from Doctor Who. Uh, oh, I, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that. I'm not even going to say <laughs> My dumbest joke note that I made this episode was, oh, great, an adaptation of The Sims. <laughs> they sound like John and Mary Sims. That sounds like Sims, like, characters. Yeah. <laughs> I think John Sims, though, is an actor who plays the master on Doctor yes, Who. Yes, he is. Yeah, so that's 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 what I was on. Like, Actually, oh, it's John just, Sims. I think it's just Sim. I don't think it's Sims. Oh, yeah. Well... Still, you shouldn't confuse these guys, because that guy talks. I won't, uh, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's born, and the dad's like, this is the... I don't, I don't actually remember his exact line, but he's like, you're going to be a great man. Uh, and then we jump ahead 12 years which a cool, with a cool domino. Uh, I really like the domino. Yeah, yeah that was pretty cool. Your transition was the coolest thing in the movie. <laughs> anyway so uh we get a little domino and we jump ahead 12 years and this is where we get our first racism uh there's two scenes of racism in the movie uh wh- why are you looking at me like that sarah Come on. i'm i'm just curious because to me like i thought it was kind of cool if they had like a black friend you but... don't need to write out the dialect in the, the, the... no no absolutely <laughs> and i noticed that in the later scene i noticed that in the later scene absolutely and also uh also his nick his name is whitey which, I did uh, notice that too. Which, uh, I think it's. I think I can call it racist. Yes, it was cool that there was a a black actor there, but it, it was racist. Uh, I thought it was more. I would say the only time when a black actor showed up that it didn't feel racist to me was when there was a black actor in the hospital when they were giving birth to their kid. It was the only time I was like, "Oh, okay, we're in New York City, and these are extras." I like that. Otherwise, I was like. There are a couple times with black extras in the scenes, um, as well as even just the inclusion of if it's a black character and they talk, it spells it out in a in a dialect that is um, stereotypical, which isn't cool. But even just having those characters in the scenes, it it's just weird that we haven't had more movies with this amount of black actors. I'd say that this is the most black actors we have had in a movie. Mm, Aerosmith. Ma- oh yeah, that is Aeros- true. Yeah, I will say if I can cut in. Um, so King Vidor actually was considered um, to be a very progressive director. He would make a lot of movies about um, social issues. Um, his other film, or his next film that he would be nominated for, um, Hallelujah, had Nina uh, May McKinney, who was one of the first uh first black actresses in hollywood she was called she was nicknamed the black garbo if that will uh give you an idea of her prestige so i think you could say that this is progressive for the time but nowadays it still makes me uncomfortable having to read out dialect you yeah. know what i mean like and of course having like the character being named whitey i'm just kind of like mm, okay uh but again it <laughs> Yeah, that's really all. Like, anyway, so we jump ahead to those 12 years, and there's the racism. And they're all asked, What are you going to be when you grow up? And everyone else knows what they're going to be. Why do you want to be a minister? Which is also very stereotypical. Uh, and then he, this actually made me laugh. It's like, Johnny, like, what do you want to be, Johnny? He's like, Oh, I just want to be someone big. 
<laughs> like that's it. My daddy says I'm going to be someone big. And then literally five seconds later, his dad dies. They don't really say why. And honestly, I want to point out something is that when his dad died, I thought like the plot was going to be, oh, now he has to help his family out. But no, it, it's not that at all. The, the movie jumps ahead a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we jump ahead of it, do any of you guys have anything you want to say on like these first two scenes before we get to our actual main Johnny Sims? I liked the setup. It's pretty obvious early on that Johnny is going to suffer from some dramatic irony. Um, but I feel like especially the stuff as a child works really well. There's some cool shots in here, too. I, I The shot of them, him looking at his dad being carried away, I was like, ooh, that's good. That's good cinematography. Is that the one where he's in the stairway? Yeah. yeah. That one has great lighting, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, I, was cinematography already a, a nomination here? Like, sub, a category? It was, and this wasn't nominated. Wings got it, right? No, Wings wasn't even nominated. Oh, okay. That's surprising. So then he turns 21 and he goes to New York City. Uh, presumably his family never comes into the equation again. Yeah, we don't so see his mom do- ever. <laughs> yeah, we, we, don't, we don't really know what happens there, but it eh, doesn't really matter. Um, he's in New York and someone of the passengers of never passengers like, you need to make sure you don't join the crowd directed by King Vidor. Uh... And he's like, to which Don't Johnny worry. says, uh, "I got some bad news for you, Mister. <laughs> look, at the, the, look at the ticket stuff." <laughs> anyway, uh, you know this should have ended with um, them going to the movie theater to see the crowd. Oh, that'd be neat. <laughs> There's a new movie out. Let's go see it. The crowd. <laughs> anyway, Pee-wee's uh, Big Adventure. Well, then it's like it zooms out on the crowd of people watching the crowd, and it makes everyone realize who watches this movie that they too are just in the crowd. Anyways, anyways. <laughs> so he gets a job, um, and he doesn't. He wants to be the production at, design of the yeah, office is so great. So the office is it's not cubicles, but it's desks, and they're all like stacked, you know, angularly. Um, it looks really cool. It's presumably it was all done practically on a big set. Um, it's cool. The entire, yeah, the entire establishing segment of New York makes New York feel so big. Um, and we have been watching so many movies that make New York feel small. My Man Godfrey's, even My Beloved Dead End, like because they are so confined to singular locations. They make New York just feel tiny. This one, though, once he gets into the city, New York feels like New York, which is really cool. And then it carries in that scale into that scene y'all were talking about with the desks. And I want to point out that uh, I noticed this on the Criterion Channel description is that people even viewed this the New York establishing shots as like a documentary type of thing where it was more like they were documenting, you know, how New York looked in 1928, which, uh, and I think it works pretty well. Like, it's like, wow, that's cool. That is old New York city. And it, and it also, you know, it doesn't really distract from the story being told. Now I will admit, I I said this wasn't boring. I think there is inherently some restlessness that comes from me watching a silent film. 
I want to want to be clear on that front that there were definitely points in this. I was like, all right, yeah, I, I got to take a little break quick. Uh, but yeah, I those moments for me came later. What I am curious about, um, since we're in this segment, do y'all know anything about the score for this? Was this an original score that was re-recorded for this? So um, I am unsure about the Criterion version. I did see that the orchestral score actually was created by Carl Davis in 1981. Now, I can check Criterion Channel right now and see if they have any details on it. So, he's at work. Uh, God, Johnny is such a pick-me. Can I just say, he's so, like, I don't want to be like anybody else. Um, So, he's at work, and people are, like, ragging on him, and he's like, you guys are all the same. And his coworker Bert, (laughs) comes up to him, Gives him a nice little slap on the buns. And all of you talk the same. <laughs> and he, uh, says. he goes, all of you yes. talk the same. <laughs> and Bert tells him that he's got two chicks that he's going to go out with tonight. He wants to know if Johnny will join him. And Johnny's like, I don't know. I should really be working on my career advancement, but I guess I'll go. Um, so it's then they go on the date and it's Bert and his date who maybe has a name or doesn't. I don't know. And then Johnny meets his date, Mary, and they instantly hit it off because he starts touching her face and hair immediately. I think the score was by Carl Davis, uh, which was written in 1981. The original score must have been lost. Uh, OK, uh, th- this is a very good score that kept me engaged. Well, yeah, I, I, that's what I was going to say. When we add a nomination, we sh- I, I was going to say score is ineligible because I don't think this was the original score. Um, that's why I was it is a good score, though. But I agree. Um, also, uh, Bert is, has actually appeared on the podcast before. He is the man in The Thin Man who's crying in the uh, at the Christmas party. And so and I was like, oh, I recognize oh. him. What's he from? Um, so it was cool to see that he made the transition into talkies. Now, let me say about what Sarah just said, which is as much as I will defend this movie, I don't like this cute scene at no. all. And I don't like how they immediately get married after it. Well, it so you know weird. why they wanted to get married, but we'll talk about that later as well. Um, so they go on the date. Uh I think it's like Coney Island. I would assume it's Coney Island. I don't know it where else there's, there's like, I have Wiki yeah. open just to make sure we stick along with the uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. And so there's this long-ish montage of them at Coney Island, it's, which I found kind of fascinating in the sense of like, because I'm a big like theme park person. And so I thought it was kind of fascinating to see like the old like animatronics and stuff and the rides, um, like what people considered fun back then. My favorite part is the, is the, it makes no sense, but like they're in the tunnel of love and they're kissing and then like the tip pops up and all the spectators see them. But then you're like, that's in the line. There's a sign that's like, there's a sign that says, did you neck? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So while they're on the, while they're in the tunnel of love, which is, it's the tunnel of love, but like there's like Washington crossing the Delaware during part of it. So. Maybe maybe they were like, oh, February, that's Washington's birthday and <laughs> <laughs> Valentine's Day. Um, no, so then, then Washington was a sex icon. Ooh. Um, so then Johnny kisses Mary, which is also 
kind of uncomfortable, but it's fine, I guess. And I would say any though intimacy in this movie is pretty uncomfortable because it's very it's a silent film, so they want to make sure they sell it, and it's kind yeah. of like, all right, <laughs> all right. Um. So then, on the on the train home, uh, Bert has a funny little moment where he smokes. Whatever, Bert's just kind of there. Um, and then Johnny's like, he sees an ad for a house because he wants to get a house. Wait, 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 wait. I think we skipped something very important. I've read this scene or the scene before that I can't remember which scene it is, but. They see on the street. Oh, yes. 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 And and he goes, what a loser. I'm going to be someone big. Who would come to New York and be like that guy? (laughs) So we'll keep that in our minds. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah. Wait, wait. To clarify to listeners, it's like a clown who's like. He's saying, he's got he's come, like a, a science spinner. He's like a science spinner. Yeah, he's a wearing clown yes, yes. outfit. I couldn't figure the word. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, so skip ahead a little bit. They're on the train. He sees an ad for a house. He's like, I want to get a house. And then he's like, Mary, let's get married. And she's like, What? Um, and then you know, fade out, fade in. Uh, I don't remember what happens next. I know they get, get married. married. They get married. Yes. And they go to Niagara <laughs> Falls. And uh, well, Bert, Bert's like. This marriage will last a year. And Which then, is like yeah, basically the last time we see Bert. I mean, he's he's there later, but uh, he's not he, as, he has a pretty big scene later on, I feel like. Near the he's end. not as important as it seems like he's going to be. Yeah. He, uh, like much of this movie, disappears. I mean, that's middle, life. But we will talk about that. It's life. Hate to say it. That's true. <laughs> hate to break it to you guys. A lot of people, you know, you're really close with them and they just ditch you. That's what happens with Bert and this guy. Anyway, uh, so they go to Niagara Falls and it's like a cool travel log type of thing. Again, it feels very documentary-esque, like we're going to show you Niagara Falls on the big screen. And uh, it works, you know, I think it's cool. It's nice. It's it, it's not long, too. That's a big thing, too. It's mm-hmm. not like we're there forever just looking at Niagara Falls. And I think he says something where he's, I don't remember, he's ever like, my love will never... Um, or not feel like Niagara Falls. Or maybe he's like, I'm going to be as big as Niagara Falls. I don't know. He always talks about getting big. Uh, and I'm going to tell you right now, uh, he can't afford to get big because they can barely afford any mo- food. Uh, so we we jump ahead a bit, I feel like. And it's Christmas. Wait, you don't want to talk about the train scene? Oh, yeah. The scene where I felt uncomfortable because there was a dialect. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, not just that. I felt uncomfortable for many reasons, but <laughs> so it's there. It's presumably their wedding night, and they're on a train. And yeah, the uh, the uh, I don't know the black uh, worker on the train. I don't know what what word am I thinking of? Porter. Thank you. Um, he's like, do you want me to turn down your bed? But it's written in kind of a an off color way, and um. He's like, yeah, yeah. And then Mary is obviously nervous. They have their little montage where they both get ready for bed. And these two guys on the train. This is something that I notice about silent movies. Everything is hilarious to people in silent films. They laugh so much. Because well, these that's two the end of the movie. That's yes, the end of- that too. The two these two old men on the train are like watching Johnny, which is a weird setup for a train that there's like a sink or whatever in one of the compartments. 
Um, but they're like watching oh, him. Was like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. Go on. Sorry. They're like watching him get ready for bed and they notice that he had some stray rice. So they know that he's a newlywed, which I thought was kind of a cool insert. And they think it's like the funniest thing about, thing they've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> they are that big, yes. They're like, oh, but you know, yes. it's really, it's a shame this is a podcast because you know, for to impersonate silent people, we can't really do that with uh, our, our audio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then Johnny tries to find Mary. There's some mishaps where he goes into the wrong compartment twice. Rule of threes. And he finally gets to her and she is like, I don't want to do this. But presumably they do. I would assume they do. Which is kind of weird when you're on a train. But whatever. I don't know. Is it north by northwest? Yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think think there is a very north by northwest scene where they kiss and then it's just... And he's like, my love for you is like Niagara Falls. And it just shows like three shots she's very like yeah oh that was the line i was thinking of yeah Yeah, that was the line i was thinking of yeah she's very Um, into the moment for sure i think the i think the big takeaway from the train scene is that this movie had been moving very quickly before then and then it just came to a halt and we stayed in the train for far too long and it was it was a signs of things to come (laughs) I agree. The train scene was so long. It was so long. So it's Christmas. <laughs> it's Christmas. Um, and Mary's mom and the two bros that she has come to visit. And John's like, I'm going to go shave. And he like storms off. Uh, I want to put out something very clear here. Is that I do think John is a very annoying person. But... I think I think the film agrees that he's annoying. I don't think it's put pointing pushing him to be like a hero at all. Uh he's just kind of like the natural result of being told his entire life, you're gonna be great, uh, and don't you worry about it. Uh and all the like stubbornness and all the like what's the word of it? Uh I wanna say haughtiness <laughs> that comes with it. Uh, people don't use the word haughty enough anymore. And I'm sure everyone thinks... Not like in 1928. (laughs) Exactly. So, like, that's my thing. Is like, in 1928, this guy is very, like, he's very into himself. Yeah. Um, and... I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the film knows he's into himself. And that's kind of why he gets the ending that he does. Uh, but we'll get to that at some point. Uh, at some point. I just want to squeeze in. I just, I just want to squeeze in before the Christmas scene. There's like an establishing, like it's basically establishing their apartment, and it's really small, and the doors don't work, and their bed is like a hideaway bed, just to kind of show that they like oh, he yeah. wanted this dream house, and it you know it didn't work out basically. Basically, we call him John, but he's really named Mikey. Um, Mikey well, four dot, from Four Dots. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I I tolerated John more than I tolerated Mikey, but yeah, they give <laughs> off similar vibes. Okay, I know the only reason you like John more is because he doesn't talk. Uh, yeah, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> you don't have to hear his voice. <laughs> so it's Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Mom and bros of Mary show up, and they're like, "Give me a 
you kiss? Mary's mom is like. And he does. And the brothers are like, you got a little shaving cream behind you. You probably shaved that yesterday. Even though we literally just saw him shave. Yeah, that was so, weird. <laughs> they definitely saw him doing it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and mom can't understand anything. Mom's like deaf. Mom, mom, like, every, and you can tell she's deaf because the inner titles are repeating it. You know, it's not like, <laughs> like, that's the thing to me. It's like, we're, we're wasting these on inner titles on the repeats. Uh, sorry, Caleb, what were you going to say? This also, it's a scene that kind of establishes his, uh, his hobby of performing because he tries to do this trick where it makes where he tries to make his arm look like it's been broken but it was it's really so bad weird. I, yeah i, I was gonna it. say it sets up his skill but he doesn't have skill the whole point of the scene is that it's unimpressive well i mean i don't know i thought it was i think i think if he did that to his kid his kid would be like that's so cool dad, it's just you know? such a weird thing to be like guess what i could do to like your it's in-laws it's weird to do it because, like, isn't it right after they ask, so have you got a raise yet? Yeah. yeah. Like, no, but I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, it's his wife who is the one who prompts oh, it. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. But uh, I feel like that's just because she's like, ah, oh, let's change the subject. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then John goes out to get drunk. Well, friend. he goes out he to go- get booze for everybody else. But then he just gets drunk with Bert. I forgot about Bert again. I don't know. I didn't really care this much about this Christmas scene. Uh, and I, okay, this is like a whole segment of the movie where I am with you guys. Where I'm like, eh, this, yeah. It, it took a bit. It, it, it took until a certain moment for me to be won over by this movie, and I'm still not won over by this movie at this point. Uh, so basically, they uh, they exchange presents and then. They're like, well, they don't. He never comes back. He spends the night and with Burton, his well, Bert's the lady next day. friends. The next day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. They get back. There's a little bit of an argument. Yes. And it kind of shows trouble in paradise. Yeah. And then we jump ahead four months. Yes. And they're still having the same argument. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. They're still but, uh... in this apartment. New York has begun to feel small. (laughs) Johnny sucks, but, you know, you just give him a chance. One day he's going to make it big. (laughs) He's just the worst. Like, he's so... So their argument argument is, like, they're having breakfast, and he just is, like... He just needs her to do everything for him. And he, like, insults her, and he berates her, and he's just... He's just rude to her. And she's like, stop being rude to me. And he's like, now! And then, like, pitches a fit... Um, he gets milk splashed on him because he's an idiot. And okay, okay, this is not a defense of him. To be clear, <laughs> this is not a defense of him. But this is kind of what I mean by like I like this movie and how sophisticated it is for the time. Because to me, hundred percent of the scene, he's supposed to be like we're I think so. To hate him in this yeah. scene. Uh, and to me, this is all this like again, it comes back to this thing where it's like his whole life he's told. He's going to be great. He's going to be great. And he isn't. And he knows he isn't. And this is his frustration. And he's taking it out on the only person he can take it out on. Because Bert doesn't seem like they hang out at all. And they do. He's higher up in the company than him. So he doesn't want to offend him. So, of course, he's going to take it out on his wife. And, like, yes, it's terrible to watch. But I also am surprised to see it depicted in such, like, an honest type of frustration way in 1928. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I am impressed this is in a mainstream movie at the time. 
That's just me. Well, that's pre-code. Yes. Even then, though, like, pre- being pre-code doesn't necessarily mean, like, you're going to get, like, these... It's, to me, the pre-code stuff I we've seen, and I've seen outside of this podcast, are mostly, like, comedies. Like, being able to put in more raunchy jokes. Not being able to make, make your main character a detestable person who also is, like, a character study of, to me, why he is that way. Um... But yeah, he's terrible. He's not a good person. <laughs> he almost leaves. Um, but then uh, Mary reveals that she is pregnant. And he's like, I will never be a jerk again. Can I just say, so they weren't allowed to say pregnant back then in a movie. The first time that they said that they said pregnant was in I Love Lucy. Um that That's so a bizarre. That wasn't Which a movie. I thought that was Sorry, okay. I meant guy. in mainstream. <laughs> but I thought it was so cool and weird and interesting that she says it. Like, you can see on her lips, I'm pregnant. And I thought that was really, like, kind of, like, you know, it's stupid because, like, you know, showing a toilet and saying the pregnancy word is risque. But, like, it is cool that it was kind of a risque moment. Um because you probably didn't need to see her saying it to understand what she had told him. Um, but it was kind of a cool thing that they left that in there. It is, yeah. Um, I think there are a lot of subtle moments of conveying information. And I think that that's one of the things that this movie continually succeeds at. Um, my big problem with this movie is that it is not, it doesn't seem to carry through its positive elements that well. Like, the scale of everything and the size gets shrunk down into these long scenes in this apartment and stuff. But the ability to convey those um, that information, both from a directorial and also an acting side, is something that's consistently there. So, we jump ahead to October, uh, and he's at work, uh, very nervous while he's doing his cards or whatever, I don't know. He he really just writes numbers and all. I mean, yeah, I guess he's an accountant. I don't know. Oh no, he's an insurance agent of some kind. Uh, But so he just keeps writing numbers and holding them over, and then eventually he gets like the go ahead that the call. He's like, "Yeah, you gotta come. Your your wife's giving birth." And let me tell you, I forgot that like in the. Well, I guess I didn't forget. I just you're not allowed to be there. I guess because you're a man who's not a doctor to see your kid be born. I, I like, know oh, you yeah. did not just say it like that. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> these men getting discriminated against. You can't Stop. see these birds. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> the movie kind of takes that approach, though, too, because it shows the entire process from his perspective. And at every point, people are just kind of making fun of him for how, like, pathetic he is taking it all. Where it's like, don't worry, we've never lost a husband yet. <laughs> yeah, that's a good line. That's a funny line. Nice little wit for whoever wrote the inner titles. Um, I liked uh, also the the crowd. The crowd no, I like the uh, I like that he hands off his thing to Bert and then he walks out. It was cool. Like, it's like, oh, there's Bert again. Anyway, so they have a boy. Uh, and he's like, I don't, I don't remember what he said. What's, do you guys remember what his first like line to the kid is? He says something to him as a baby before the time skip. I don't know. I would assume it's probably in the same vein as what his dad told him. Probably. Yeah. 
Because life's a cycle that we can't break. Um, like the Tron cycle. Uh, so we jump ahead five years. <laughs> so we jump ahead. Uh, oh, and we find out that he's had a daughter and an $8 raise. Which, which is a lot of money. $8 in five years is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, especially in 1928. Uh, however, well, we get some exposition, but I want to more talk about the scene is that after this, we go to the beach. Uh, and I felt so bad for Mary. I know. She's trying to, she's trying to set up her picnic and having a good time. And... She pretty much is just caught. Well, and John is doing his ukulele. Oh, Freaking John! <laughs> and he's constantly she's constantly asking, "Can you just watch the kids for a second so I can set up lunch?" And he only takes one kid at a time. <laughs> he refuses to take them both. <laughs> And there's this great part where everything's falling apart and she's like clearly upset. And he's like, why aren't you enjoying your vacation? And she's wait, like, wait, wait, I'm wait. doing the exact same thing. You skipped just in a different spot. The most disturbing part of the, the scene, cake, which was the cake. <laughs> that to oh, me was cake. like, that to me felt like uh, how in the first Quiet Place movie, they constantly show the nail. And like, Ooh, I'm just going to step on the nail. That's what this cake was. And I was like, this cake keeps almost hitting the cake. What is going to happen to the cake? And the kid, I don't remember if he actually steps on it, but he it does, gets yeah. totally covered in sand. Yeah. And poor Mary tries to wipe it off, but it's, Cake doesn't work like that. If sand is on the frosting, you're not going to be able to get it out. That's not how sand works. I'm so sorry, Mary. And then, yes, the entire, yes. What? Sorry, yes. No, it's just this entire time I was thinking, God, Tupperware is great. I mean, I know it's bad for the environment and everything. But man, is that great. And the cake looks so good. Yeah, for like a black and white silent cake. Because you knew that know, it was chocolate. You knew that it was a nice chocolate cake. (laughs) And the kids would have loved it. And Mary was looking forward to it. And then, yes, as Caleb. sand. (laughs) It gets everywhere. It's coarse and rough. It's everywhere. (laughs) But then they eat sandwiches. Um, So, yeah, as Caleb said, uh, he's like, aren't you enjoying the vacation? And she points out, I'm literally doing as much work as I would do at home. Because she doesn't say this, but he's not doing anything. No. He's singing a song on a ukulele. <laughs> and taking that's the thing that's so crazy. He takes one kid at a time. <laughs> <laughs> he takes one. And she's like, just take them both, please, so I can set up. <laughs> Well, don't worry. They won't have to worry about having two kids for much longer. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves. So Mary's like, so why why is Bert higher up and you're not? And John's like, well, I don't want to be higher up here. I want to be big somewhere. Like, I want to be big. Yeah, whatever. And then we discover, this is what was so mind-blowing to me, is we didn't mention this earlier. So in his first scene at the insurance company, we see him writing down ideas for ads. Like, you know... Yes. Like ideas for slogans for an ad contest. And then we find out in this scene, he has never sent them into these contests at all. Because she This goes, is what makes him so unbearable. Yeah, yeah well, okay. <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't realize he wasn't sending them in until she said it. Is like he just goes, he's like, Well, I'm gonna be big, and she's like, Why don't you just send them in? Uh because they okay, to be clear to the listeners, is 
and actually, you know, I've seen this in other, th- I don't know, movies or TV shows, is that these ad companies would do these, basically, come up with ideas for you, we'll pay you a one-time fee of it, and then we're going to use it everywhere. You know, like, classic capitalism ripping off, like, the actual ideas type of thing. Uh, and I think this movie actually does critique this very much, that, very much at the end of this. Uh, so anyway, that, uh, he finally sends one in. And sure enough, he wins on his first try. Uh, and he wins $500, which is a ton of money yes. in 1928. Yes. Like, honestly, a part of me was like, you know, when you see like $500, like I just think of today, I'm like, oh, that's like, that's a, like in Spider-Man 1, right? Tobey Maguire wins like $300 for uh, beating Bonesaw. So 500 I'm like, that's pretty good. I'm like, oh, wait, but this is 1928. This is so much money. It was $6,977.80. Man. Pretty good prize. I could use that. Yeah. Yes. So he wins it. And he buys... Actually, this is what cracked me up. Is you see the wife, you see Mary making a list of what she wants to spend the $500 with. But then he comes home, and he's already spent all the money, it looks like, yeah. or a decent amount of the money on stuff. See, that's what I thought the conflict <laughs> was going to be. I thought the conflict was going to be, like, he spent all of their money on, like, useless junk. But then I, the movie takes a different approach. <laughs> uh, so, Mary and John wave across the street. Why their kids are across the street, I don't know. Yeah, their kids, she's, like, two years old. Yeah, they're two, they're two and five years old, and they wave them back over, and they run across the street in the truck. I shouldn't be laughing. It's just, it's so dramatic. Like, the truck is, like, right there. And they're like, stop! <laughs> That's the best part. I'm sorry, but the best part is when they go downstairs, and she's laying face down in the road. And she's such, it's such a mannequin. It, it's great. <laughs> so um she dies wow there's like a part where he again wants to be like the center of the universe which this part was kind of relate this part was kind of relatable i will say like i it came from a place of sympathy and empathy for me because she's sick she needs to get better and everybody's being really loud so he goes out, he like tells everybody in the room, he's like, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. He goes outside and he starts telling like random passersby to like, just be quiet. And then a cop tells him, um, like, you can't expect the entire city of New York to be quiet just because your kid is sick. So like, it is Which him. Which is a good, uh, it's a good line. Yeah. Like, also cops suck. Like, yeah. <laughs> it is like. Even in 1928. Yeah. <laughs> it is something so where like. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk for expecting it, but also, like, you can see where he's coming from. It's, and just the entire conflict with the child dying is the first time in the movie when something bad happens to him, besides his dad dying, which this kind of rhymes with, where everything else he could have prevented. This, though, is, like, purely an act of random tragedy. And it's it's sad. Well, you know... Honestly, though, I kind of like, yes, like parenting was different back then, but I do kind of wonder if the beach scene was supposed to be foreshadowing in some way. Like, yeah, because he didn't really care, you know, Mm -hmm. like. But I do. I do wonder if maybe it was meant to be kind of his fault in a way. 
But at the same time, parents were crazy back then. They just like let their kids do whatever they wanted. <laughs> yeah, that's also was my thought at one point too. It's like, wow, this is this is New York City. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like these kids are just like across the street having a good time. What New York City. Um so anyway, she dies and he goes back to work and his hands are really shaky because understandably his two-year-old daughter, he just watched his two-year-old daughter die in the street. And his boss walks over and just goes, you're not doing this as fast as you used to, buddy. No sympathy whatsoever. And he quits, which, like, good like good for him. Like, right? Like, I'm sorry. Like, he might be a jerk at other times, but, like, if well, this guy's gonna be... be what the, he's clearly no, grieving no, no, his no, daughter. No, no, right? I get, no. I completely get that. It is something where it's like... I you know in this movie is not like criticizing capitalism I don't think but it's like like kind of like a retrospective like like he can't quit his job he has a family you know what I mean but like he needed to quit his job so it's just like a tough like it's like you empathize with him but you're also like you know you can't do that I, I don't know to me entirely I was like no you can't be like he's there for five years of his life and, like, we're told multiple times, like, he, like, and I don't see a reason not to believe Mary that he is a hard worker at his job. I have no reason not to. I think he seems like he does his job well. And then, like, as soon as his daughter dies, they're like, how dare you be slower? To me, that is an indictment of capitalism. Like, or at least an indictment of the work system of the time and, like, the dehumanization of workers. So, acknowledging something... I don't think necessarily makes it critiquing something. Um, and I think that's what we see here because it doesn't go out of its way to really explore those structures. It just adds it to be one of the many things that comes down on his, in his life. And like we've pointed out, some of those things are his fault. Some of those things are random, but there isn't any other acknowledgement of systematic, um, systematic oppression. I think the entire film is about systematic oppression. I think the whole, sorry, I'm, I'm, this, this is me. I think the whole film is about like, you are sold this idea. This is such a cliche, but you're sold the idea of the American dream as a kid. You're told you can be big no matter what you want. You just have to work hard and things will like, things will like come your way and you'll get promoted and you'll become partner and it'll be great. And here he is after five years of doing that. He hasn't moved up at all. He got a good raise, but he hasn't moved up at all from his menial work. And then when his kid dies, he's given no sympathy whatsoever. And they're told you need to hurry up or we will like give your work to someone else. So, yeah, you're basically thrown into the fire. So quit and leave of your dignity. Because the fact is, if your kid is dead and that is the response of your boss, that is not somewhere you should work. And now I'm talking about I should get back to my point, which is that like. That, to me, is an indictment of, if not, like, the system overall, but the idea of your job will lead you to happiness. I'm just I'm just curious if that's in the text at all or if that's something we're carrying in from our modern perspective. Um, because it could have also, you know, a 1920s person could read this as, yes, he is, he's not, you know, doing his manly duty to support his wife and kids. He's letting emotions control him. Now, of course, we don't we don't see it that way, but I'm curious what someone in the 20s would think. <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll, I will... I will... Yeah, sure. 
I, I'm just I, my my thing is like I don't really care about people in twenties. I care yeah. about what I think. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. I'm not saying you're wrong here necessarily. I just don't think there's anything in the text to convince me one way or the other. Yeah. So he quits, and before he like looks for other jobs, he doesn't tell his wife, and she's like, "Oh, well, I cook so much for the company picnic tomorrow." <laughs> and Another cake to make. Well, what did make me laugh is he's too afraid to tell her. He's too afraid to tell her. So they crash the the party anyway. Yeah. (laughs) And then she talks to Bert and is like, could you please put in a good word for him? And then Bert's like, you should probably tell your wife about your job right now. And that is the last we see of Bert. Yes. Where Bert ultimately chooses to, well, he doesn't really choose to keep his job. He's not going to quit in solidarity. Well, Bird is ahead of him. I mean, Bird is, he's above him in terms of, you know, his job. Yeah, I don't, to me, it's just something where it's like, he, they, we are presented that they're friends at the beginning, but ultimately John is just as disposable to him as, like, any other worker would be. Um, Granted, of course, we don't really see, as we've covered before, he kind of disappears from the movie. So as far as we know, they're not even friends anymore. But I also Mm -hmm. think... I think that, Paul Caleb just said, is I think in 1928, you're not really going to think maybe they weren't friends in those five years, you know, because it's still like the friend guy in the movie and the characters are treating each other like friends. So John looks for another job. He becomes Willie Loman to sell vacuums. Yes, Um, that is that did make me think of Willie Loman. Yeah. And he quits pretty quickly because... And I kind of agree from here. It's like, no one's buying vacuums. They already have one, which is like, okay, yeah, sure. Like you probably can find a better job. Mary's brothers offer him a job. And John is like, no, I'm not taking a charity job. See, this is where I'm like, what are you doing? Like, come on. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I think we've all worked jobs we don't like in our lives and we've sucked it up. I'm not saying that that's, you know, he shouldn't strive for more, but maybe strive for more while also providing, you know, sustenance to your wife who's okay. looking very haggard. So, sure, you are all correct, but I feel like it's pretty safe to say that John is depressed. And even if you might not get that diagnosis in 1928, I think it's pretty clear that's, to me, that's what's going on here. It's like his dreams are in tatters. The one time it looked like things might actually work out for him. His daughter died <laughs> abruptly. And I presume all 500 of those dollars went to the doctor. Because uh, we don't really seem to see them having it. Uh, and then, like, I don't like, I get that he just want a charity job. And the fact it, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Uh, but, and then, I don't know. I don't want to defend him too much, but I, I feel like I've defended him pretty much this entire podcast. Uh, <laughs> so I love uh, the amount of empathy you're showing towards him. I, I feel like it, it's very relatable in a lot of ways. <laughs> it, it reminds me in a way of my reaction to marriage story when I was like, you know, Adam Driver is objectively a terrible person in this film, but I also 100% could see this being me in like 15 years. So... <laughs> Um. Uh, anyway, so ladies, if you're interested, <laughs> hey, if, um, if I'm being compared to Adam Driver, that man is a sex symbol, so I will take it. 
I don't know. I just like I don't. I don't mean to be like. No, never mind. I'm not gonna get into it. I was gonna talk about him being depressed and do like, um, I think we're all depressed, but I'm not gonna do. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, John. Well, to move on, John goes to attempt suicide. Yes. Uh, with his son right by him, which is uh, a he little. He tries like, to make like, his own lightning. <laughs> yes, he does. You're right. And with his son being there, his son's kind of like, "Daddy, don't do it. I love you." And he's like, you still love me after all this? And he's like, yeah, of course, you're my dad. And I I felt this was touching. Like, I didn't cry or anything, but I was like, aw. The the, only thing is, when the scene is over, he just leaves his son on a bench. Well, that, that, that kind of goes with my that goes with my thing. I'm like, wow, New York City in the 20s seems way safer than it is today. <laughs> and he goes to search for a job, and everyone else wants the jobs, the job board place. Then they ask, "Did somebody here juggle?" We've seen earlier in the film, he knows how to juggle. So he gets a job as a sign spinner, wearing a clown outfit, wearing a clown outfit. Even though he doesn't spin a sign, he just juggles. No makeup. I was disappointed, but I guess that might make it hard to tell it was him. I think I think that was it. Is that they didn't want to make they want to make sure you knew it was him. So he gets money, not a lot, but enough to get by. Uh, and Ox also, to be clear, it does turn out he bought some tickets on the way home. So this isn't his full wage. He bought some stuff on the way home, but it's still not that a lot. But it is it it's implied to be quotes enough to like get and it by. shows. And, you know, it's the dramatic irony has come around and it shows that he's no longer, like, obsessed with this idea of being so important that he wouldn't do a job like this. And I I do enjoy seeing him take pride in his work, even though it is not something that is socially, like, prestigious. Yeah, it's like, it's development. And, but Mary, this this to me went a bit long. Uh, Mary's like, I'm leaving. (laughs) And he's like, please don't go. He's like, I'm t-, she's like, I'm taking. Well, actually, she doesn't say I'm taking Junior. But then he's like, can- he- then she comes back in later. And she's like, you're allowed to come visit Junior if you'd like. And I'm like, so- oh, somebody picked him up from the bench. I don't know who got him, but he's there now. <laughs> Probably just walked over and his dad was coming back. <laughs> and we should say they're living in. They're living in squalor, so probably a responsible thing to to take the child where they can be. Oh yeah, I'm just for. saying that they don't really say it until he's like, oh, it's by like the way, yeah, it's yeah. implied that she's. I mean, I kind of, I don't know, I kind of figured that she would, anyways, just because maybe because of gender norms, but yeah. I think she'd be a bit, pretty bad parent if she didn't. <laughs> yeah, because it's okay, because it definitely is. Yeah, we've said this before, but it's super clear that he cannot care for himself uh he's very much a man child in a lot of ways which is why like the ending is like i'm going to be well he doesn't say i'm going to be a good person but you know like he's trying to be better uh and then uh after this long scene they ended up going to a vaudeville show where uh they watch it they're having a good time and he sees that they're still running his ad of the uh the the slogan he came up with in the playbill or something and he's like whoa that's mine and then they all start laughing silent film wise and the camera zooms out until we can't see them anymore because they are all just people in the crowd the music is very ominous as it's zooming out 
He was going to be someone big, and now he's just one but of see, many. But see, I don't know. For me... So the thing is, like, MGM did not want an unhappy ending. Uh, originally, they had a happy ending. Yeah, I went against the production. The production's yeah. interesting. Yeah. But what I'll say... Before, before we get into that, I guess I'll say, like... For me, I didn't find it to be necessarily an unhappy ending. Because to me, it kind of seems like she didn't want to leave him. Like, she might stay with Which is kind of an unhappy thought, I guess. But to me... It kind of seemed like, you know, with him getting this job, with him spending time with his family, like, he's part of the crowd, but he's accepted it. Which is kind of a depressing thought, sure, if you want to, like, if you want to stand out, but, like, it it's him kind of coming down to earth. So, to me, I didn't necessarily see it as being this, like, really depressing ending. Well, I think, to me, this is kind of like what Caleb was saying earlier, 1928, like this probably isn't depressing to us today, but in 1928, you know, the whole movie's been talking about how he's going to get big and nope, his, his happy ending air quotes is that he keeps his family together, but he's still working as a sign spinner. It can barely afford to go to this vaudeville show. Mm-hmm. And he's just one of many people who are seeing the vaudeville show to cheat for cheap to try to forget about their problems. I think what um, kind of will affect the way you see the ending is that, if you feel like he failed to live up to his dreams, you're going to see it as a failure um, and a sad ending. If you see it as him removing himself from the idea of the American dream, like Danny's been trying to make this case the whole time, you might see it as like a more positive. I did not care by the time the movie ended because the movie <laughs> lost a lot of goodwill by just very long stretches in the middle of nothing happening. The beach scene way too long. The scene the where they're almost, yeah, they're <laughs> the almost cake. leaving way too long. Yeah. We needed the cake tension. The um, cake was very tense. <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting. That is such an ambiguous ending. Uh, I want to say that there was an actual official alternate ending, uh, because so the movie was actually held back for about a year because, uh, Louis B. Mayer, did not like the ending because he said this isn't happy. Uh, And so according to Wikipedia, they shot seven alternate upbeat endings and they finally released with one of like two of them. One of them, you could pick, you know, the original ending that, you know, the movie has. The other one is you can pick. uh, It ends with the family gathered around a Christmas tree and it reveals that John got a job with the advertising agency of the guy who was sitting next to him at the vaudeville uh, show. I don't like, I don't know. Like to me, I mean, like I get it. I definitely get that was the mentality back then. Um, And like, especially around this, well, not, I mean, I guess like right after this time, but around this time people went to the movies to escape. Um, I just, he doesn't deserve it. You know, and I don't mean that in the sense of like he's a bad person. I just, for me personally, I don't think that he really worked that hard, which, you know, I don't know. He just, it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he really deserved it. I liked, I liked that he accepted, you know, this idea. I guess the, for me, the moral of the movie is like when everyone is special, no one is special. Um, and like he was like, he just wasn't that special. Yeah, I think I think if I had to pick a moral, it's that you don't become special by thinking you'll become special. 
like, and there's this great line at the beginning where it's like, John went to New York and joined the billions who believe, who delude themselves into thinking that the city needs them, which I like, mm-hmm. but once yeah. again, lost a lot of goodwill in the middle. So <laughs> I think, uh, also the thing with, uh, I don't know. I was going to say, I kind of, I don't want to be like, I like the alternative ending. Cause I don't, I think the original ending is much better, but I do think there's also kind of this idea in the film. This also might be me deaf. This is probably bringing my own baggage that John is not a good fit for his job, but he doesn't really look for other ones. And then he becomes happy at a job where he gets to juggle, but he's good at coming up. Well, the movie tells us he's good at coming up with slogans. I don't think his slogans are any good, but clearly in the world of the film, they are so, but yet he's working at a job where he just writes numbers. So I don't know. I get the implication that he is supposed to have some talent. It's just, he doesn't know where to utilize it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the other interesting fact about this movie, uh, Sarah, I'm I, I'm aware you probably have the Wikipedia yeah. page open as well. It's the next paragraph. Uh, so the lead, James Murray, uh, succumbed eventually to alcoholism and became a Skid Row bum. So Vidor saw him on the street a few years later, panhandling, and offered him a spot apart in the upcoming film he had called Our Daily Bread, which eventually released in 1934 and is apparently which, a sequel yeah, to this. Yeah, this I believe he, he offered him like the same role, I'm pretty sure. Why was there a sequel to this? This should not have they a They moved sequel. to a farm during the Depression. This should not have a sequel. Sorry, this is definitely one of those movies like, <laughs> nope, absolutely not. Which the uh, sequel then confirms then that the alternate ending is not the canon ending. It's just stupid. They shouldn't have a farm. The whole point of it is like, I'm sorry. <laughs> they shouldn't have a farm. Ending, <laughs> the ending should honestly be, well, the ending of it should be the ambiguity of uh, they, they might be screwed over anyway, you know, like that, that's what, like they, this, these guys. Well, that's kind might, of like an ominous out. thought, isn't it? This movie came out in 1928. This idea of like, they should be screwed over. Well, just wait here. <laughs> There's a sequel. <laughs> just in case you were worried. Um, but anyway, so Murray refused this part. The quote is just because you stop you on the street and try to borrow a buck. You think you can tell me what to do? As far as I'm concerned, you know what you can do with this lousy part. And then in 1936, his body was found in the Hudson River, assumed to be a suicide. It's method acting. In the wrong order. And Vidor tried to make a film about him. Vidor tried to make a film about him, but the movie was never made. I I will say that makes Vidor come out to be a better looking person. Because like if he was, I don't know, well, like when to make a film with him afterwards, I think shows an amount of respect or empathy Maybe just pity or exploitation. Who knows? Maybe I'm projecting. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I would, well, I guess we'll never know really, but I don't know if it would be exploitation. If he's offering the same part, you know, in a movie that's, you know, presumably a little bit happier than his current situation. I'm honestly a little, I'm a little like, I don't know. This is actually kind of uh, heartwarming in a way. The idea that there's a sequel to this classic film that no one has heard of the sequel because it's not as interesting. That really is like, you know, like how nowadays, you know, there's always these movies that like, you know, 
the first one is great and then the sequels are terrible. And you're always like, ah, the sequel ruined the legacy of the first one. But in this case, no one's talking about our daily bread. And the crowd is still, like, taught in film school. So it's kind of like, oh, well, I guess in the end... And I guess you could also see this, of course, with, like, 2001 and its sequel. But, like... It's, all the Four Daughters sequels. Well, but our Four Daughters... Every single movie that we've covered that has a sequel... <laughs> the Thin Man, yeah, sure. The Thin the Four Daughters is not really being discussed by anyone. Uh, but The Thin Man, yeah, sure, exactly. Um, it's kind of like, oh, okay, great. Like, cool. Like, make a sequel to Moonlight, Barry Jenkins. I don't care. The Fool always have the original. Um, he's too busy <laughs> making a sequel to The Lion King. <laughs> oh, sad. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so this got nominated for two Oscars. Do we really want to do this? Like, I it got nominated for director and basically picture. So we can't really. No, like, you have to say the full title. What does it what mean? Is it, what is, is it unique and special? Yeah. No, unique and artistic <laughs> picture. Unique and special is a little anagram. Oh, I am, you know what I mean? All right, Sarah Danny, what's this movie unique and artistic enough? I genuinely am lost. I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't I, I I abstain. I cannot because pick we between don't. a director and a basically unique picture award that only happened at one Oscar. This is so weird because we don't consider <laughs> do we don't consider Sunrise to be a best picture winner. We only consider Wings to be. That's so weird. I, yeah, I'm I think there's a reason they changed it <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> I'm not gonna shirk on my duties, listeners. Uh, King Vador, I think, did a good job and. From what Danny said, sounds like a you know you know not a bad person after a while. But it's like it's like okay, you're basically choosing him, but he's also basically the only option. <laughs> That's kind um, of like, actually. Like, I will choose it for unique and artistic picture. <laughs> Go well, for and, it. In that case, I pick director because I I don't want to give it best. I, I don't I don't understand what it's that not is. best picture. That's why I'm choosing it because I don't know what it means. There's no there's not even like like a like a you know there's not an annotation. There's not a separate page for it. It's just there. True, which means because you have you are the only person I assume in this century to give this award. You are now the expert. Sarah, you can there give you any movie now the unique and artistic award. That's going to be my cop out. the next Oscars. <laughs> anyway, so what nomination would you add, Mr. Caleb? Yeah, I'd say cinematography. I think it's pretty, pretty solid. Um, I, for one, uh, downplay cinematography in silent films. And I think a lot of that is because, you know, you watch some silent comedies and stuff and they're not all they don't always have the budget that necessarily like a silent drama does but the silent dramas i've seen usually always have really impressive cinematography i don't know it was good i will give it to i'm gonna say best writing original story um because i don't know i just thought it was i mean the pacing was not the best but i've all the categories, I think that that's probably the one that I feel most comfortable with um, for this. I don't know. I just feel like it it hit it hit some some interesting tropes and stuff. I will go with art direction 
I think the uh, production design, but it was art direction at the time. Um, the sets are consistently pretty cool. I think it utilizes the sets well. Yeah, I mean, the, the cinematography is a good one too, but I want to go with art direction also because I think it's, I think it's more fun when we all pick different things, and I do think the production design is pretty cool here. Honorary nomination to the score. Very good. Big yeah. fan. Yeah, I just don't consider it eligible, but yes. Yeah, it's if it not. was, yeah. Um, all right. So do you guys want to know what we're doing next week? Well, two weeks from now? Sure. I always say next week. Um, so we will be going back to the Eleven Academy Awards for the other film that got however many nominations. I think it was four. Nope, it's five. Okay, sorry. We're watching the uh, Sorry. Anyway, the other film with 11 nominations from the 11th Academy, five nominations from the 11th Academy Awards. It is, drumroll please. Merrily We Live, a film by Norman Z. McLeod. What is this movie? I don't know. Hmm. It doesn't seem to have any names I recognize in it. So. Oh no. Oh no. <sighs> What? I usually try not to read the synopsis, but I I just couldn't help it. Society matron Emily has a habit of hiring ex-cons and hobos as servants. We have another Godfrey. <laughs> Mommy! <laughs> Mommy! Wow. All right. Well, that'll be us in two weeks. Do we want to take bets on whether it's a secret rich person? Uh, not yet. I'm Danny Vincent. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Blank Vince. You can also find me on my other podcast, Why is with Ty and Dan. It is a podcast about Marvel stuff, a.k.a. the real cinema. Just kidding. Absolutely not. I am Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. Um, and from there, you can find all my other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, All New 52, and Star Wars Therapy. Special thanks to our editor, Joe. Thank you, Joe. You did a good job editing this, I assume. We'll see. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's for us to decide. <laughs> and I'm Sarah Knopf. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-K-A-Y 29. Um, also on Letterboxd, just my name, Sarah Knopf. Um, and you can find us, our podcast, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook is just uh, the Snub Club. Twitter is Snub Club Pod. And Instagram is Snub Club Podcast. All right. We will see you in two weeks when merrily we live. Bye. Bye. Bye.